welcome to a classic big interview. This is where we dig into the vaults and choose an episode from the early days of the show. This time, we've gone all the way back to season 2017-18 and opted for one of our absolute favourites. This is what I had to say about it back then. Do enjoy. Yes, well, it had to happen sometime. We were caught by the fuzz. Welcome, in other words, to our big interview with Detective Sergeant Steve Arnett. This was a voluntary chat and nothing I said was used in evidence against me yet. Line of Duty fans, and there are millions of you, will know all about the waistcoat-wearing detective. But most of you won't know that Martin Comston, the actor who brilliantly plays Arnett in the BBC crime drama, is a former professional footballer and he trained at that mecca of football. We call it the home of football, Aberdeen. Pataudry, as a youngster, he was there. We taught him a great deal about his poison charm. So yes, I'm claiming him as a dandy. Listen out for cameos from Paul McStay and Henrik Larsson. The big interview with Martin Comston, brilliant actor, will take us to the set of The Damned United, the film which told the story of Brian Clough's ill-fated spell in charge of Leeds. Martin, who plays striker John O'Hare in the film, is often fiercely critical of movies about football, but he explains why he thinks that The Damned United gets it so right. He also talks about what it was like to work with the director Ken Loach on another great film which had football as its backdrop. Tickets. From Loach to Michael Sheen, Martin tells great stories about some famous names. And how about another? Prince? Martin's late-night encounter with the legendary songwriter took place on the eve of a soccer aid match. This is a wee beauty. Enjoy. Probably my all-time comedy heroes are the Marx Brothers. Really nice people, funny people, tremendous story. We're sitting in a groucho club. My team's Aberdeen. I'm sitting opposite an all-time <laughs> dandy's legend, and he's one of Britain's new breed of super cops. DS Steve Arnott, everybody, was a dandy. Martin Comston, welcome to the Groucho Club, welcome to the big interview. Whoa, this is exciting. You said you are psyched. I'm psyched. Have I made it up that your football education came in my city at Pataudry? Tell us about it. Um, well, just first, thanks for having me. Uh, big time, uh, big time fan of the show, and you know we've, we've came to know each other over the last couple of years. And thank you for doing the Lennon interview for the hospice and everything for me. But yeah, delighted. Well, it's not quite uh, football education. Was was Greenock uh, and Morton, but no, I, I signed with uh, Aberdeen uh, youth when I was about probably about thirteen or, or fourteen. So yeah, I spent. Most of my years, it was it was great times. I mean, the Aberdeen they had a fantastic youth system. I probably I'm not sure as much as I like, but they spent my summers up there, spent my October holidays up there. I was under Roy Aiken at the time, and um, they were great at letting the young boys sort of mix with the first team. So I mean, by the end of end of probably most training days, we all had just a big game. So by 13 or, or 14, you were having a kickabout with Joe Joe Miller and Theo Snelders and Ian Jess and hey. Well, yeah, he wasn't doing much running, but Dean Windass and all those kind of characters. Yes, listeners, I am drooling. Yes, <laughs> I am. But I really liked it, and we'd uh, so it was a load of boys because uh, they were sort of set up into different 
uh, areas and uh, we did most of our week uh, weekday training at Bothwell, mm-hmm. uh, all the West Coast boys and then for oh. holidays we would we'd go up to Aberdeen. How, who spotted you? How were you spotted? And when they saw you aged 12, 13, yeah. what did they see in you? Um, I think, if I remember right, the, the, the scout's name was Peter Brain and um, my... My local team before, I mean, cause on and off, I've sort of been with Morton through Boys Club, Morton Youth for nearly 10 years. And uh, we had a great run, the Boys Club, that year to the Scottish Cup final, uh, where we lost to Celtic. And for what I'm told, the boys are quite adamant that young Darren Fletcher was on the opposing side. But, Hello, guest. Well, yeah, yeah. And it, I, played, I played against Darren a couple of times just because um, we were the same age and we were uh, sort of like district trials and all that kind of thing. But yeah, I think we'd, uh, it, was, it was a great time, actually. We came up against some really good teams in that run. But all these bigger clubs were recruiting from all over Scotland and uh, sort of Celtic as well, I think, had boys from Ireland and stuff. And we were just 11 boys for Greenock, all, all literally just pals. And all the thing that really beat us that day is because uh, we had a great run. But, I mean, most of us were all Celtic fans. And when the McStays and stuff are on the sidelines and they come out wearing the hoops and all that kind of thing, you know, we were sort of beaten before the game began. So I would even pick you up. I, I, I genuinely like to know... What was that you did well? What, what, because I, I, I'm asking because I'm yeah, going to get no. to a remark you made to me uh, later on when you yeah, start listening um, to the interview. It was funny. That, uh, this shows you how long ago it was. I was a sweeper. I could read the game very well, and uh, I was w- very well known for stories for taking chances, or what I would say, just playing out from the back. Yeah, you know, I love to get on the ball, and and <laughs> as most strikers are absolutely clueless when it comes to making a tackle. And uh, so you could read them very easily which way they were going. And I always kind of, something I've always been quite bitter about is a lot of my managers always going, and again, hopefully our game's changing, especially with the, the way Barca and stuff play and people become more educated. It was always, you're going to get caught one day. And I'm like, well, what about the last three seasons or something I've played yeah. and I haven't been caught? And I don't think I ever did get caught in the end. I mean, obviously, going up to a higher level, I probably would have. But we just had this mentality that when we're getting screamed at for passing the ball in the box, mm-hmm. and you're like, well, if somebody's there and they're, and they're capable on the ball why not so I'm a lot, lot older than you but I remember the, the rules were and you were screamed at yeah. never pass across yeah. your box yeah. ever yeah. and that, that what we've begun to recognise is a curse of yeah. developmental football they'll lump it kick it yeah. along I think that, that we've exposed that generally yeah. across the country we know where did that instinct come from you? We, we, evidently nobody taught you that you could well, play I from the back. It was probably, Is it I, inherent? Well, because I probably started higher up the pitch. So I kind of had that thought was a bit, probably a bit more player, but it turned out I was actually pretty good at reading the game. So I ended up at the back anyway. So playing, I just thought I could get on the ball a bit. I mean, but where we grew up as well, I mean, I've heard this quote, uh, talked about quite a lot in previous podcasts, but it's some uh, street football, you know, so mm. we, we could all play in concrete. But growing up, all we mainly played on was ash pitches, you know, mm-hmm. and uh, it wasn't which, conducive which to Which for anybody football. who hasn't played on them or yeah. seen them, to which there will be, dis- describe that. It's basically just stones, you know, that's the best way I can say. It's just, and trying to play... <laughs> any kind of football on that it, it, it's really impossible and it's what is incredibly annoying is when I get I was lucky where I grew up I grew up in a place called the Valley and um, all the houses were around this one big field so we had a big grass pitch to kind of play on mm-hmm. me and my pals every day after school but in terms of the facilities for young boys it, all we did is play football and um, all weekend we were on these terrible ash pitches but what they thought was they were all weather pitches mm. and then now you see these kids and they've got these beautiful 3G and 4G parts, and they're just lying empty. There's nobody there. No, there's nobody there. And it's just, you think, well, what I wouldn't have done to have them when I was a boy. Because uh, the first after part we got, 
And they thought it was steady art, and it was just pure flat. And in the winter, it was like a, it was like an ice rink. Yeah. You know, people were getting serious injuries uh, slipping on the thing. But no, I mean, it's, I suppose being a young boy growing up in Scotland, I mean, again, I don't know if times are changing. It was just, it was what you did every single day, you know. And I, where, where I actually, a lot of my pals, we had a, a really good standard, I think. Within my school team, there was seven or eight of us all on S forms, and I think four of us went pro and two of my close pals went on to have really uh, good careers. Sean Dillon was young player of the month in, uh, in the Scottish League and I got young player of the year for Kilmarnock. Gary Harkins was captain yes. of Dundee, went on, yeah. won the League Cup with Kilmarnock. So we had a really good bunch of boys, they were all pals and we, we could all play a bit. At that age, who did you watch that played the way you liked? Well, I mean, I'm, I'm Celtic daft, but I grew up, and this is why I'm absolutely loving it at the minute, I grew up at a time, like, the club was in disarray, you know, I mean... I was born in 84, so probably like 89, 90 is when I you start kind of knowing what football is and that. And it was like the worst period in Celtic's history. But Paul McStay mm. in the middle of that pitch was just sheer and utter class. Mm-hmm. You know, his range of passing and just the way he played the game, you know. So Paul McStay and John Collins were sort of uh, the two sort of rays of light for, for as a Celtic fan. Alongside Tommy Burns, Paul McStay epitomises what we believe it is to be Celtic. It's just the way he carries himself, you know, the way he's through and through about the club and the way he played the game. Because he could have went on to a far higher level. Far higher level. And it was heartbreaking. I want to forget, I mean, this is, how, this is how far we've come. I remember our first kind of trophy I can remember as being up for was the League Cup final when Ray Rovers beat us. Mm-hmm. And, and McStay missed the, missed the penalty. Mm-hmm. And I remember being more heartbroken for him because you mm-hmm. could just see it in his face and... He is loved. I mean, he's the maestro. He's loved within the club. And, I mean, I've, I've been brought up in his goals and his passing and stuff, so... Calm on the ball, like you said you were sweeping at the back. I, just, just that sense just of pure, order. Pure relaxed. And I said, two-footed when he wanted to be as well. He can get a goal. One of the things you picked up on what you were watching on Barcelona was this proof that it's ability and reading and vision, not height and power. Aye. Did, did that bring well, an end to the Aberdeen I, thing? No, or? it didn't. Aberdeen were great. I kind of left football because I'd never, I was never going to get where I wanted to be. I think being... That was an act of choice. Well, I was, the thing is, I was a sweeper and I, I thought, felt very comfortable in any, any kind of circumstance playing sweeper. But sweeper was dying out. And I think the way I played and sort of, I like, I mean, being a bit of a short arse, you know, I'm a bit of an ankle biter, you know, I like a challenge. And so I, I thought, everybody thought, including me, the move up to old midfielder would be seamless. Now, I was good at it, um, but I was nowhere near as good as I was as, as I was a sweeper for reasons... I, I don't know and uh, and but getting there you know I then realised with playing at more stuff that was probably the highest I was going to get so that made the choice a lot easier when I had another year at Morton or pursuing the acting I, that, that I went for the acting but what's sick what I was getting back to is that having now went to, I've now played in all these places that I dreamed of I'm about to play at Parkhead for the <laughs> third time I've played at Old Trafford I've played at Stamford Bridge I've played at Wembley and, in some ways, it does feel a bit perverse that I'm, I'm running out in all these grounds in front of these massive crowds and playing with my heroes, you know. I mean, I, I've been very lucky with my job that I've met some true legends, and I mean proper legends, you know, like John Connery, Michael Caine, Robert Redford, like Royley. But the only time I've ever... I was shaking when I met Henry Larson. I couldn't speak Gosh. to him. I, I could not speak to him. I couldn't function around him. Um, I think for all, I think for all of us, who, let's say Scots are yeah. are proud of a man of achievement, your achievements, and I, I think I've explained to you that because I live abroad, I hadn't yeah. been aware of line of duties emergence when it came out. I hadn't seen the pre publicity when it came out. I, I 
there's a, there's a what a good actor that is. Yeah. And you were English, as far as I was concerned, <laughs> literally. And that must be given to you yeah. an awful lot. But we're, we're proud of Scots for achieving. I think that it'll be pleasant for people who would be daunted meeting you and, and thrown by this famous guy, and we'll come on to a line of duty in a minute about the level of yeah. fame you said has gone off the scale with the, the last series. It'll be, it'll be nice for them to know that even the greats yeah. get a bit daunted around their heroes. Yeah, too. well, because, I mean, it's... So suppose it goes both ways. I think they, when you when you meet them, they all get a bit kind of flipping out about if they're watching TV. But, yeah, I mean, especially sports stars, but if you're a football fan, you know, and when I kind of grew up, it wasn't their best time, but then when the Anil era arrived and this team just kind of blew away everything before them, and I'd never seen them, and we had the new stadium, and before that, I mean, like being at Hamden and stuff, it was miserable, you know. Yeah. And uh, my, my my first, I got I was called a Jonah after my after my first couple of games in the old jungle. I was a boy, and I think we got I remember we got beat by. Motherwell after Carol Muggleton dropped the ball and Dougie Arnott scored and then we got beat by Dundee United Wayne Biggins missing a sitter and I remember being in school singing Sack the Board at primary school assembly (laughs) you know and um, and then this new area arrived with this new stadium and you got Henrik Larson with his dreadlocks and it was just it was something I'd never experienced before and he's I mean, maybe somebody like Dumbelli at the minute's got a shot, but we what is incredible, what we got at Larson, we got his best years. He was mm. genuine world-class. What He went on to win the European Cup with Barca after us, mm. win the league with Man United, but we had him at his very best. And to see him at full flight was, was magnificent. It really was. And I, mean, I was behind the goal for the... Um, I was in the Jock Steen stand, which is the way Celtic shoot in the second half. And so I was directly facing... That incredible goal he scored against Rangers in sixteen, where he took it down, he's not made contact and Chick Cross, and it was just pure poetry in motion, you know. And we're not very well renowned in the west of Scotland for being the most open with our feelings, but we're sitting there with your big brother, and you know you're just on the verge of tears of happiness, you know. The same actually, um, we uh, I was with my brother at, when we beat Barcelona two one, and just that night, it's just it, it was magical. You've been involved in a couple of football projects on film, which happily blends the narratives a little bit, including one that will be more famous and one that I think made a huge impact on on us tickets. But let's start with um, Damned United. What's the experience of filming that like? And and did you even know who here was? No, I I, I do have the team, but again, because I remember having um, a conversation, I'll bring it back to that, I had a conversation with Tom Hooper, the director who went on to win an Oscar for um, uh, the King's Speech right after Damned United, but I remember them saying to me, uh, yeah, because the big thing, they were the most successful team of that era, and I went, no, they weren't. Celtic <laughs> were the most successful team of that era. We won the European there's Cup. A, there's, a theme, there's a theme. Um, but it was great to be part of. Um, for one reason, you had 14 actors in a hotel for three months. So, so you could all like, help each other with your yeah, lines. We were all is, is that what we're saying? Yeah, there was, uh, Some sort of like yeah, improvisation yeah, classes. Yeah, we were or... all there for each other. Put it that way. Uh-huh, I remember. Uh-huh. Well, it was that it, many... all times of day and night. Is that? <laughs> I remember one day. Um, aye, aye. I was because we were hitting it that hard and we were training. I remember getting in character. Actually, only, I, had to put, I had to put a chair behind my door <laughs> because Stevie Graham. We'd all got keys cut for each other's room. So we could get. So if anybody was not wanting to go on a night out, we could get and get them out. But it was it was brilliant. And um, Michael Sheen's a phenomenal actor, lovely guy. Michael can play a bit. But it was it was nice to be in that because some of the footage as well. I remember watching them do the scene with uh, Colm Meaney and Michael Sheen, which was the the interview between 
Clough and Revy when after the Clough had just been sacked. New Yorkshire TV. Yeah, or... he turned up. Yeah. And I remember thinking, reading it, going, that's not believable. Mm. And they right away went, no, this happened. Mm. And he showed me, so I'd encourage anybody to watch it. And so Clough's just been sacked by Leeds United and he's been asked for an interview and he turns up the studio and Don Revy, the former manager and his mortal enemy, is there waiting on him and they have this bizarre interview to, to get out. And again, but Revy raises some good points. Why did Clough take that job? He, I mean, he labelled them dirty leads, mm-hmm. which they're still to this day, I hear people calling them. And um, he tore them apart. But it was, I think, because people have this thing about me, and uh, I, I actually just got offered a football film, which I turned down, because I hate football films. I don't think they're done any well. And when it's something you're so passionate about, what Damn United did great about there is all the inner workings of the club. And it's a, a fantastic true story. And there's a lot of footage. And it's just clips of the game. You can't really catch a game in full flow, I think, unless no. it's playing. And it's actually, it's a, again, I won't name it, but it's, they've got a bit of money behind it. And my, my I remember my agents and my managers send me and saying, you'll love this. And I've been, no, you, if this isn't done right, and they called a striker a goal-getter. No, thank and you. And from that moment, I went, no, if you can't even, I don't care who you are, if you can't do your research enough, even if you're not a kickball, to know that it's, it's a striker, then you're not going to connect with your core audience. And... Um, I love football films in terms of films that are around football. I think football is something very hard to capture on film. Football in full flow, it's, I think it's very easy to see somebody who can't play football. In my mind, the only way you could, you could capture a really good football film is to employ actors who could really play and then just let them play and get what you got. At which point the actuaries are going to say, but what if one of the stars yeah. turns an ankle, they're not going to allow well, it to happen? That's, that's, that's true, isn't it? Yeah, like, you've got to let it happen. I mean, I'm damned United. Well, we pal Stevie Green, like a lot of people don't know him, sort of was Al Capone and Boardwalk Empire, but Stevie's a great friend of mine. He absolutely scudded me on, on Damned United in one. You know, he was supposed to do it, but you let... It was a great moment as well, actually, because Stevie was playing Billy Bremner. So we had a lot of local sort of younger lads in as sort of the extras yeah. and stuff. So we were playing training games, we were playing our positions to try and get in, and we're playing Derby versus Leeds. Uh, Stevie's running about the park, being a wee Scottish general, shouting abuse, and he's giving this one kid abuse um, as Billy Bremner. And the guy's dad ran on the pitch. <laughs> <laughs> Guys, leave him alone. And we're all like, whoa, 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 he's Billy Bremner, what are you doing? We're uh, pretending. Uh, and then I remember the dad going off, I oh, saw so you're a good actor. And Stevie going, I've got a few awards as well. I've seen him, he's, he's, he's intensely funny. The way I've seen him off Aye. character yeah. is Soccer AM. When he comes on, you've got that brilliant... Even sitting as a viewer of the television, you're like, anything could happen here, yeah. literally. He's great, he's great fun, he's great to be around, and he's uh, he's one of those actors who's universally loved, and I mean, literally from DiCaprio, Depp, and down to sort of way where anybody that's ever worked for him, he's, he's, everybody loves him. Everybody, I think Scorsese called him, he's, he's British Joe Pesci. Yeah, he's, he's well-loved, yeah. That's astounding. Yeah, they worked together on um, uh, Gangs of New York, and then I think Scorsese headhunted them for Al Capone and Boardwalk Empire, And because he's a talented boy. Well played, Stephen, well played, Stephen. Hopefully we'll talk later. Mm. Sheen captured that mm. role like not many people yeah. can do if you're playing somebody real. He went and I think he did the same in Frost. Yeah, yeah. it's funny, he did Frost Nixon. And he played Tony Blair. Mm. And Michael's one of these incredible actors where 
He's played three different historical characters there, mm. and somehow by the end of it, he looks like every one of them. Mm. And he doesn't, but physically, just because he, be, he kind of morphs into them, but there's a there's a massive difference in acting between doing an impersonation and acting, because mm-hmm. that's for people like Rory Bremner and stuff to do. It's not mm-hmm. impersonation. No, you have to bring the character to life w- within their mannerisms and stuff. And I think Michael's the best in the business at it. But lucky a couple of times with some of the big bigger actors I've worked with, and I worked with Michael when I was quite young, there's a couple of scenes where he's in, in the dressing room giving us all this big team talk and rallying the troops. Now, obviously, it's, that looks like maybe a minute, two minutes on film, but that's like two days film because it's on Michael from multiple angles and then you've got to film around him, the rest of the team. And I remember the, the ADs and the directors and stuff saying, Michael, save your voice because he's in every scene of the film. Like, let somebody read in for, uh, okay. for you. And Michael going, no, if the boys are reacting to me, they'll react to me. And when you're with a young actor seeing that coming through, that, that sort of sets a standard for you. When you talk about Line of Duty, you, you, you talk a great deal of pride, not just about the performance or the character, mm-hmm. but about what the show stands for. And one of the emblematic things is the big long interview scenes. Yeah. You've given me to understand that the actors have got a voice in how that develops. And you, from the outside, you'd always imagine that the director's the boss. Well, yeah, I mean, the thing is with something like especially TV, but something like Line of Duty, basically you get two directors a year, sort of, uh, per block. So one does the first three episodes, one does the second three. But if somebody's... A director's coming on in the fourth series, and we've been doing it for four years, we know the characters inside out. More, You do need a fresh voice, and you need, obviously, somebody to kind of run the ship and control it, but we know how these things work. I mean, and um, the, the interview scenes are completely unique, you know, so... Lenny James in the first series actually set the standard Lenny came in and because with these sort of things any time I've ever done scenes of that length before you tend to break it up because people say they want to keep the momentum going and by the time you get to page four or five you're tired or you lose your way but that's what we want that's what would happen in a real interview you know so if something goes a bit awry or you're a bit flat then it gives the, the person on the other side of the table time to up their game or react and so Lenny came in and he said right, we're doing it all the way through. And we were all a bit shocked, but, I mean, it's that sort of fear thing. Once we did it once, we went, well, that was great. Mm. Like, that really, really helped. And this, unfortunately, we didn't know the scenes were going to get longer and longer and longer as it went on. The final episode of Series 3, that was an extra, that was an hour and a half. Usually they're only an hour long. But if it was just a normal episode, that final episode was just two scenes. It was a 28-minute scene and a 30-minute scene around the table. Either daunting... But, I mean, you feel you've earned your money that day. I mean, and as I say, like somebody like Tandy Newton, old superstar, you know, lovely woman, BAFTA winner. Mm-hmm. Even for somebody, we've got to reassure her going, it's all right, we'll get through this. Because the thing with Line of Duty as well is it's not just the length. The dialogue is so challenging. You know, all this police talk, all this forensic speak, you know, exsanguination, genome sequencing, you know, all this kind of thing. And... Um, to make that sound like you're going after somebody, it's not the most threatening at times, but it really is if you're, it's in the real world because these people know what you're talking about. Not to mention try to hold all that together with an accent. It's not easy. It's, 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 it's a tough day's work, but we've done something that was never really tried before. And I think that's why people have reacted to it so well. And we don't make any apologies for the audience. That You have to stay with it. And in this... In this day and age, everything's so immediate. You know, mm. it's binge watching us, but we we make people hold on for the week because you have to digest what's going on. You can't be checking your phone, you can't be tweeting or whatever in the middle of it because if you miss something, it's gone. 
So the idea is that you're, you're giving depth, veracity, intensity. It's also because you're talking about the, the police procedures, long scripts, but you also, each of you, the three principles, you're very intense people, I think. Yeah, yeah. It, well, depends the, if you the, meet in a bar the, or in the characters. The, the, <laughs> the characters are. Yeah. I'd imagine you, you use a lot of energy. Burn yeah. a lot of energy. Anyway. Yeah, well, especially be, I mean, I'll, I'll probably say this a lot of people, but, but Steve uh, plays a wee tosser, you know, and I intentionally make him so. He's, he's, he's a little, you know, terrier running about in his, uh, in his waistcoat getting after people. Especially in um, the last series, it's kind of maybe not something you would notice sort of off the bat watching, but we're always on the move, whether it be in the office. We're very rarely sitting still because you want to keep this, this idea of movement and something going on. So when you're doing that, like scene after scene, day after, it gets a bit because you just go, can we just sit down for one scene and just have a chat? But then when we do sit down and just kind of slow everything down, then you know it's something, usually something heavy is about to hit. Back this away if it's rubbish. Have you learned anything from sport that you take from a, a team environment, a dressing room environment, about performance? Oh, absolutely. Into the, into the sort yeah, of... Yeah, I mean, I thought that from coming from football, I thought that quite uh, immediately... Especially jumping in that the, the kind of way you look at, it. I mean, sort of the director's your manager, you know, and you even if sometimes you don't agree with them, you you work for them, you know, and um, you give them your best shot, and uh, yeah, and you, quick, you quickly realise with these things it is one big team because I think where people lose their mind in this job is, for instance, it was pouring a rain the other day uh, when we were filming, and uh, somebody's following you about with an umbrella. That umbrella's not to keep you warm; it's to keep your costume dry. Yeah. But people can lose a sense of importance, you know, and they think, oh, I've got all this happening. And when people are running to make you tea, it's not because you're more important. It's because you're not allowed to leave set. Mm-hmm. So you're, they always know where you are, and so you're ready to go. You know, but people can get, I think, they can get filled, and it's easily done. I've seen what are you happen. saying? That, that if, if everything's done for you all the time, yeah. you get into a mode of thinking that everything should be should done be for done you all for the time. You, yeah, because it can't, but even for me, I mean, I'm, I'm very grounded, so I said, I know all these things aren't done for me, Martin Compson. It's done to keep the actor on set and make sure he's ready to go and he's not drenched from one take to another. But it can be quite disconcerting when you go for four months of having your, your driver outside waiting on you and your shop picked up for you and all of a sudden the job's done. And, and just, there's nobody there. Yeah, it can be. I mean, I said I'm quite grown, but I can see it can mess with people. It really can. We're not going to let you go, even though you're going to meet very important people, much more important than Hello Paul or Gordon um, after this. Tickets? Yes. I'd like to hear about tickets. Tickets was the second film that we can launch, and it was a kind of a mad... Because, I mean, Ken, I think, is only coming to sort of... He's, a lot of people love him here, and he's coming to promise one of the greats, but in Europe, he's adored you know, he, and um, so they had this big because film. of the prominence of art house, the art independent house cinema. cinema. Yeah, independent cinema. That's yeah. the better way of putting it. And yeah, like in France, when you go to Cannes with them, I mean, it's oh. it's mayhem. But so they had this idea of doing a film about refugees on a train was called, but then three different stories, and the three different directors did half hour each, and the last half hour was Ken's, and it was about three Celtic fans on their way from Glasgow to a Champions League game in Rome. Oh man, it was ideal. I mean, you were just you were getting paid to run about in a Celtic strip and <laughs> sing Celtic songs and one of, one of the boys Gary Maitland who's in it is, he's a big big Rangers man he has uh, lived it down to this day the best job he's ever had does Ken Loach just a, as an aside does, does the statements he make the films he make what he, does he represent something themes that you believe absolutely. in absolutely I mean uh, I, anybody kind of knows me knows I'm a socialist and kind of things I believe in but I think what Ken does 
One, he makes the films that nobody's got the balls to make. I mean, I, Daniel Blake, is one of the most important films of the last decade, in my mm. mind, And but it's a commercial success. Mm. That's what Ken does. He, he brings these things out. And the way he films, again, is completely unique, which was quite tough to start because Ken never says action. He never uses Mark. Well, Mark, for anybody, is, is basically, you think, all these camera angles are, are in perfect focus all the time, but basically you've got something on the floor that you need to hit every time for you to be in focus. So it's kind of, that's something from not going to drama school, which was great for me on Mark of the Glen, but you need to learn very quick. You need to hit your mark. That's your big thing. You just sort of, you kind of need to learn to see with your feet. Yeah. You know, you just need to gauge distances. Because literally for people, it, it'll be taped maybe. Yeah, it's tape or something, or, but sometimes not even, because if you can see the floor, you're not allowed. So yep, okay. you kind of know where it is and you've got to kind of just basically hit it. But Ken doesn't use them. Because um, he doesn't want people to be aware of who's on... Because with the focus of the scene will change with the focus of the camera. Mm-hmm. So you could think it's on you, um, but it might not. It might be on somebody else. So is, the technique, is that technique supposed to be presenting a slice of life as if the camera Absolutely. wasn't there? and it was very difficult. Exactly. It's sort of, in some ways, sort of like documentary. But what's great about that is, as you said, you don't know who's the focus of the scene at times. So you're giving your everything because you, people become very aware of when they're on camera and people want to know their angles, darling. Am I here? Am I here? Am I mid-shot? Yeah. Am I close-shot? And then they kind of, they, there's this kind of thing that, that maybe it's a bit older school now of people always saving themselves for the close-up because they think that's their big one. But sometimes the scene doesn't get into the close-up because it sits so well on a wide shot, but people are half-arsing it because they're waiting on it to come in. I mean, I've, I've been guilty in the past. I think, I think most actors have been at some time, but with Ken... As he doesn't shoot that way, you, you're never aware of what's what. So every single take you're given, it never says action, never says cut. So you're never aware really of with anything else. It's, does this? You get the clapper board, which I'm sure everybody knows is the thing at the front of the scene. But there can be a sense of right now, act, mm-hmm. and that's been done. Yeah, Whereas yeah. with Ken, it's there's nothing like. So it. does the scene just peter out? No, you kind of know what it's his natural end, but he'll he'll just pop in and go, oh, thank you, that kind of thing. You'll never see cut, you know, and there'll be nobody coming in, or they'll do that when you're not looking. We're nearly out. Sadly, before he died, the prince phoned me and said, is it true that Martin Compson knows Greg, <laughs> Gary Tank Commander, McHugh? Um, yeah. is Gary, Gary's a bright, leading man, writer, Greg, performer. Yeah, yeah, Get yeah, yeah, Gary yeah, to yeah, everybody yeah, else, yeah, Greg yeah. to us. Is he the kind of guy who might lead you astray? I think we lead each other astray uh-huh. quite a lot. We, um, he's a great friend of mine. I say a very, very talented boy, you know, very. with fresh meat and he's doing the A word now and stuff. But yeah, we sort of coax each other on. You know, we've ended up in some some heaps together. Is there an example? Well, <laughs> well, one of the great again, one of the great <laughs> things about this this job is I got to play in the, the soccer thing at Old Trafford, which was just an unbelievable experience. I, I believe Kevin Bridges um, touched on it on his, you know, and me and Kevin had a great time, you know, sitting with Mourinho and stuff and. Um, well, basically, I, I played I played a charity game and, I, and I'd done my ligaments and I'd a keyhole on it. And I kind of thought that was it. And it took me out of work for three months. So my agents instead said, right, enough's enough, sort of. Like, it's time to concentrate on the on, on your actual job. And then the call came through for Soccer Aid. And I hadn't even run or anything on it yet. And I was just thinking, maybe this isn't the right thing. But I says, I'll go down and I'll have a run. And if I can wait on it, I can't miss this opportunity. Because they told me Mourinho was... Was managing. You were going to be playing with Seedorf, Stam, Davids, Del Piero, Shevchenko. You know, it was an incredible lineup. Van der Sar, and I thought I just need to kind of uh, just to be on a pitch with these people. And Mourinho was unbelievable. So we turned up on the night, and I had a run about with the physio that day. And he said, "Look, it's weak, but it's we can do stuff for you, and it'll be uh, it'll be all right. We'll strap you up and all that kind of thing." 
so Mourinho comes down for the initial kind of dinner thing and he had a dossier on every one of us <laughs> and he says look I know about your knee he says you're going to start at the weekend because the point was we were to train Tuesday to Friday and play the game on Sunday and you were sort of to play yourself into his plans and he said you're going to start don't don't train like we need you and a bit of, a bit of me was like you know be, having been a footballer I wanted to be on a training pitch with yeah. Mourinho and yeah, yeah. see the secrets and all that kind of thing and so he kind of let me kind of pot about he'd always kind of have me on and go like this is where you're going to be front post back post every he's so organised it was unbelievable like everybody knew where they had to be and it was just mind blowing to see this and the first thing he said is look this is for charity we're going to enjoy ourselves but we're here to win my teams don't lose so we got the Tuesday Wednesday the Thursday he'd let me have a little kick about he says right tomorrow he says I'm going to let you train on the Friday so I was buzzing so I was trying to get an early night and then the phone goes and it's Greg. He says, look, you're going to come out. Uh, you want to come in town and meet me? I'm out with uh, Paolo Nadini, who's another, who's another good friend. And he says, no, look, mate, I've been on the, on the table all day, get my massage and stuff. Says, the guy says, my, my knee's fine. I'm going to train tomorrow. And he said, look, just come into town. I'm like, no, no. He says, look, just come into town. Hug up, phone goes again. He says, look, just come meet us for a beard. You're all right. I said, look, mate, we're on lockdown. I'm playing this game on Sunday. And he said, um, he says, look, just move. And I went, no. Phone goes again, it's Paolo. And he says, if you don't come out tonight, you'll regret it for the rest of your life. And I went, look, you, you take the piss here. Because I said, look, I really shouldn't be doing this. So do you mean that? And he says, ah, just come down, you'll see what I mean. So I, I got out the back of the hotel and jumped a taxi. You know, all the England boys were already out, but I think they were about hanging, but Mourinho was kind of strict on us. Rightly so, I think. And so I got a car into the Groucho where we're sitting now, meet Greg and Paolo for a drink. And he says, look, just follow me. We walk around the corner, just around the corner there, I think it's the back of the Hippodrome. I walk into this tiny wee booth and now struts Prince. <laughs> <laughs> and proceeded to play for the next five hours or so solid. No. It was unbelievable. Obviously, you know who Prince is and you know some of the songs and stuff, but I've never seen anything like it. And there must have been about 100 people in the place. Whoa. And then so I got on about 7 or 8 in the morning. Hosey, Hosey gave me the shout on the pitch. And I went, no, I think you're right, Hosey. <laughs> I'm back on the table. We trained. felt my knee a bit heavy and I don't want to risk it for Sunday. So I just sat and lay in the bed for the rest of the day again. Did you tell him? I told him after that. I told him on the Sunday night. But I didn't want to jeopardise because... I think I was supposed to start left mid. Michael Sheen broke his wrist and Michael was supposed to start right back and he said, look, I'm going to need to move you to right back. So, But I've got a great picture because of that because he said, look, I'm going to move you to right back so Michael's going to start and then we'll put you on. He's going to change the, the banners, whatever, and then you'll go on. And I've got a great picture framed of me at Old Trafford with, with Jose telling me at the side <laughs> of the pitch point and where to go. And then he said to me, uh, Ollie Murs was one he said just make sure he says that boy's a whippet so just make sure he doesn't get on the ball or do anything and as he ran by Hosey just ran on the pitch and, and nailed him <laughs> <laughs> just nailed him and but I seen Wee Murs rolling around looking up at me and I'm mad and then but that set the tone for me so I just nailed him the rest of the night <laughs> but it was I mean, I mean that kind of stuff was was unbelievable and and to get a, a thing of being on a pitch with those players and what I'll never forget is maybe he's on to say he's underrated isn't the right word because he's won the European Cup with three different teams mm. but Seedorf controlled the tempo of mm. that entire game I mean you've got world class players around him all legends but he controlled that game when he wanted to up it the whole game up and when he wanted to slow it down I think he scored three that night actually it was unbelievable he, he remains a really good athlete as well I mean, yeah he's he, a the machine. in his yeah well I mean with the, the, him and Davids were whipping the bodies out in the showers me and Kevin were, made ourselves quite scarce <laughs> <laughs>
That, that's going to stay up there. Oh, that, top, top, top. top. That, Every young that, fella's dream. I played blasting through the past. That's the stuff that stays with you because that's it's the stuff I grew up watching. You know, I mean, I always loved acting. I always loved movies and stuff. But, you know, I didn't dream about winning Oscars. I dreamed about lifting the cup with Celtic. Now, we do have one question before we stop because people bother to write in. So, Ian Hamilton, if Martin could play one famous sportsman, who would it be and why? Eh... Uh, with Sprunt- Benny Lynch. Is a shout? Benny Lynch. Because he's another one, I think, because it pretty much goes back to what we were saying. Uh, he achieved it. He was Scotland's first world mm-hmm. champion. He went all the way. And I think and Robert Carlyle has been a vocal backer of it. So am I, am I to try and get a statue for him uh, at Central Station. Because there's this incredible picture of him at Central Station. I think there's like 10,000 people there after he won the world title and him being lifted and carried through That's by the sick. crowds. Um, but it was, I mean, it's a really tragic life story. He was undefeated when he lost the title. He lost it because he was overweight. He never made the weight. He knocked the guy out still. Hmm. And then he sort of descended into, you know, um, uh, alcoholism and died destitute. But everybody said he, he gave every pretty much every last penny he had away. You know, he was a very kind man. But no, he went all the way. So that that would probably be something. That's I think that's a story that has that story to, been you know, filmed. I had one of these things. Maybe that's where it came to my problems. And it's one of, I got one of these jobs script offers came through, which was too good to be true, and it turned out it was. It was me playing Benny Lynch with, and my coaches and managers was Gabriel Byrne, Brendan Gleeson, and Gee, Robert Duval. Please. I think so. It was just like if yes, this please. if this happens, yeah. um, and it sadly didn't. You're very generous. You've got a busy life. The momentum is talent. Thank you for sharing this. You're a great storyteller. <laughs> it's been a pleasure. The big interview with Martin Compson. Thank you. Thanks very much. Thank you for listening to the big interview. It's produced by me, which sounds egotistical, but it's also true. Graham Hunter and Backpage. Our music is by Beer Jacket, who else? Editing by Charlie McGarry. Thank you to our hosts at Acast and our loyal sponsors at Bet365. We're also supported by our socios. Find out how to become a socio, how to support us at patreon.com forward slash Graham Hunter. Here end of the lesson.